Well, as Grant said, it's week four of our Advent countdown. You can see we've lit our, our fourth candle uh, of the season. And as we get closer to Christmas Day, we're getting closer to Christmas in Scripture. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been walking down this very chronological path, this very prophetic path towards the birth of Christ. In week number one, we, we look at the very beginning of the whole story, the Proto-Evangelium that comes out of Genesis chapter 3. We looked at the first promise that God made to mankind. Immediately after the fall in the garden, God makes this amazing promise to one day send a redeemer. We called him the serpent striker, right? The one who will strike the serpent's head to reverse the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the world. And then in week number two, we watched as God began to drop these, I called them breadcrumbs, along the Old Testament path, promising the future arrival of Israel's one and only Messiah. And like a, a series of puzzle pieces coming together, uh, the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament begin to paint a picture for us of who this man would be and what exactly he would be doing. And so we read about him in the Psalms and Isaiah and Micah and Daniel and Zechariah and finally Malachi. And as that picture began to come into focus, we saw a pretty amazing thing. On the one hand, we saw a suffering servant who would be a substitute for us. And on the other side, we saw a victorious king. We saw a son of man and a son of God. We saw one who would die, yet at the same time, one who would reign on the throne of David forever. And it causes you to ask the question, well, how can that be? And so last Sunday, we dipped our toe into the Gospel of Matthew to take our first New Testament look at the serpent striker. And we looked at his genealogical roots, right, and, and sort of the foundation for his birth. And in particular, we looked at the power players of that day, Caesar Augustus the most powerful man in the world, Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we saw how all these powerful men had no time for the Messiah, nor did they desire that the Messiah would come. Why? Because they were firmly entrenched and comfortable in all of their power and their wealth and their prestige. And who on earth would invite a disruptor into that who might shake things up and cleanse the land? But last week, we also saw there was one group of seekers that were hoping to identify the, the true king of the Jews. And to Israel's shame, they weren't even Jewish. They were astrologers from the east, from the land of Babylon. They were the ones who came and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So we left off there last Sunday. Today, we're going to let those bread, breadcrumbs now take us into the gospel of Luke. And I realize whenever we talk about Christmas and the gospel of Luke, everybody wants to jump right into chapter 2. Because that's where all the fun stuff is, right? The little town of Bethlehem and the, the heavenly host of angels that sing and the manger and the shepherds and all that fun stuff. But did you know that all the real action, the foundation for the Bethlehem story takes place in chapter 1? So that's our assignment for today. We're going to simply read through Luke chapter 1 and we're going to break it down as if we were watching a play at a theater. I want you to think about you've come into a theater and you're going to watch a play. Luke chapter 1 unfolds like a series of, of scenes in a play, each with different settings and context. And so we're going to walk our way through that and we're going to see exactly what God has to say for us today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. I almost thought about just sitting down on a stool up here put on some slippers and just telling the Christmas story, right, from Luke chapter 1. But the elders talked me out of it. I don't know why. All right, before the, the theater curtain goes up, what's the first thing you do? You open your playbill, and you want to read something about the author, right? What do we know about the author? Let's talk about this, 
Gospel of Luke. And really, he, he says much in the very first four verses, sort of his introduction to the Gospel of Luke. So let's look at those verses. Verse 1, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So what do we glean from this? Well, Luke's gospel is the only one of the four that's addressed to a particular person. This man, Theophilus, he's believed to be a high-ranking member of Roman society. He's referred to as most excellent. Could have been somebody that's high up in the senatorial ranks of Rome. And he is a recent or new convert to Christianity. As I shared last Sunday, Matthew is a particularly Jewish gospel written by a Jew from a Jewish perspective, and Luke is the other side of that coin. It's written by a Gentile man with a Gentile perspective to another Gentile man with a much wider and broader audience in mind. It's a universal gospel. But what I really want you to see here is Luke's purpose in these four verses. This is the key for our study this morning. This is the key to really understanding the truth of the Christmas story. Luke is seeking to give us an accurate chronological account of the story about Jesus, and he's using rigorous investigation and eyewitness accounts to establish it. In other words, he's doing what nobody in our culture today seems to be doing, real journalism. This is not fake news. Real journalism, real historical work. And verse 4, he summarizes his heart for this man, Theophilus, and for us, by the way, he says, that we might know the exact truth about these things. I'm going to use eyewitness accounts. I'm going to check my sources. I'm going to look at it really carefully. I'm going to give you a, a chronological account, and I want this to be the exact truth. The Greek word that he uses there, the best way to look at it is, is to translate it as certain. And there's, It's used two other times in the New Testament, and in both of those settings, it refers to something that is securely locked away. Now, we live in an age today where many churchgoers aren't taught in that way. They're really not taught in to, to understand lockdown theology, and so they get tossed around by every doctrine, to and fro, right? Whatever comes their way, they run after that, and they chase after that because their theology hasn't been locked down. So Luke doesn't want us to be blown off course here. He wants you and I to know that the things he's about to share are secure, they're stable, and they're unchanging. Amen? And so he's going to start from the very beginning, and he's going to begin to weave the stories of Jesus and John the Baptist together, and what he's going to do is what we call scaffolding. He's going to build a scaffold, one layer of truth upon the other until we see who the serpent striker is. Amen? All right, so scene number one in our play, it's always going to start with a map. Anytime you, you see a map of Israel, there's a couple things you have to immediately identify. Two bodies of water, you see them there. The one on the north is called Sea of Galilee, and the larger one in the south is called the Dead Sea, and the blue river running between them is the Jordan River. Good. So if you're going to Israel with us in, in April, we're gonna, you're going to get so tired of this map, you'll never forget it. It's going to be amazing. So what you see there, the blue dot is Jerusalem, which is in the, in the, the region of, of Judea. And that yellow dot, is that yellow or orange? That's orange, maybe. 
That orange dot represents generally what we call the hill country of Judea, that general region. Okay, that's like smack dab in the middle of the hill country, and that's really the, the setting of our very first scene. So here we go. Let's look at verse 5. <clears throat> in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So right away, you see that Luke wants to root his gospel in historical facts. He identifies right out of the gate who the king of Judea was at the time. That's important for history. And then he introduces us to this certain man, Zacharias. Now, he's an older gentleman who has a very important role. He's part of a regular rotation of priests who would go up to Jerusalem twice a year, serving one week each time, his particular service in the temple. He's part of a, a division of priests, which, by the way, you can see the, li the list of the division of priests was created by King David. You'll find it in 1 Chronicles 24. There are 24 priestly divisions in all. So David establishes it somewhere around the year 1000 BC, and here we are 1,000 years later. They're still following this division. Pretty impressive. 24 priestly divisions in all, and Zacharias is part of the eighth of those 24, what's known as the division of Abijah. And you're like, who cares, Jeff? Right? What ridiculous detail. But again, I want you to see, this is Luke the historian at work. He wants you to know this Zacharias is not a fictional man. I didn't make this up. This is when he lived, this is what he did, and this is the part of the rotation that he was in. You can check the facts on this. And interestingly, his wife Elizabeth is also from a priestly line, from the family of Aaron. So this is a, a priestly family through and through. And we're told they're a very godly couple, right? They walk blamelessly. Now, does that mean that they were perfect and sinless? No. In biblical terminology, what that simply means is they had a lifestyle that was not marked by, by sin, unrepentant sin, but they had a lifestyle that even when they stumbled, they, they repented and they continued to trust in Yahweh. And yet, we also find out this couple's marked by something that was a source of shame in Israel. They were childless. And that's especially for the woman. To be childless was to be, have a source of shame. And now, they're, here they are advanced in years, so you can imagine there was no longer any hope of ever being parents. Okay, scene number two, we have the, the temple service, what we call the temple service. And the, the, the setting shifts. You see the, the arrow from the or the orange dot, going up to Jerusalem. When the calendar a week arrived for the division of Abijah to serve in the temple, Zacharias would have packed his bag, kissed his wife goodbye, and left the hill country and gone up in elevation, up to Jerusalem to fulfill his obligation. So scene number two, the temple service. Look at verse eight. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he, Zacharias, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Big deal, right? I mean, you could read right over that, de that detail. But listen, this was a huge, huge deal. In fact, so big that an ordinary priest like Zacharias would get to do this one time in his entire lifetime. Chosen by lot, but this would have been his one shot to do this. What did he get to do? He got to enter into the inner courts of the temple. 
the inner courts. He got to go into what we call the holy place, which would have been just outside the holy of holies. Only the high priest goes there. But he would be in the holy place, right, separated only by that veil from the holy of holies. Very, very high privilege. And this was a task when you burn the incense. This was a task that was associated with prayer. And in particular, to go in and burn the incense was to pray for the nation of Israel, to pray for the people, and to pray for the hope of Israel, which was the coming of Messiah. And the picture that we're given in the scriptures is that as that incense sort of rises up from the sanctuary, it rises up in the nostrils of God, and it's pleasing in his sight. And so that smoke rises up with the prayers of the people. And it was Zacharias' job to go in there and intercede for the people and to pray for them. This was a big deal. This is the thing you have to see here. This is the single greatest privilege of this man's lifetime. This is the pinnacle of his career as a priest. And within that, that system, the temple cult before Christ rises from the dead, this is the most intimate that this man would ever be with Yahweh in this single moment. So I, I'm, not tr I'm, I'm trying to paint this picture as big. Did you catch that? Well, I don't know what your biggest moment would be in your profession or in your life, this would be like for me, I'd be in London, and I'd be standing in Spurgeon's pulpit and preaching. I mean, that, that'd be my situation. I don't know what it would be for you, but this would be the moment of, of a lifetime here for this man. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Now, this is really cool. Check out the picture here. While the priest is inside interceding for the people, the people are standing outside interceding for him. Really cool. And no doubt they were joining in the very same prayers for the hope of Israel. Now, as you get the picture, I want you to try, I know this is hard, try to put on a pair of sandals like Zacharias. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Most important moment of your life. And you humbly step into the holy place. This is the place you've only heard about. This is the inner sanctum of the temple. You step into the holy place, and you know instantly that you have just walked into the presence of God in a very, very real way. The feel of the room, think about it. Would it have been what Zacharias expected? The stillness of it, the, the quiet of it. Just you and the Lord in this room, and you're thinking holiness, and you're thinking excitement mixed with dread, the fear of the Lord, all of those things are going through your head. As you approach the altar of incense, which was right in front of the veil, you know the Holy of Holies is right over there, and flickering candlelight is coming from your left, from the, the golden lampstand, and the smell is coming from your right, the table of showbread. This is the moment, and you look all around. You look up, you look down, you take it all in, and suddenly a flash of light. I can only imagine a flash of light, and you're aware that somebody else has walked into the room. And all of a sudden, this awesome sight comes into your view. Verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Can you picture what it might have looked like? Can you try to imagine what you would have thought in that moment when you saw this creature? Now, I can, I can only imagine the size and the scope of this being, his splendor. I can't even, I can't even grasp what I would have thought in that moment, but look what Zacharias feels in verse 12. He was troubled. That may be the understatement of the year. 
Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Good. Right? That's a good reaction. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Now, isn't it true that throughout Scripture we see angels doing that all the time? That's always the first thing they say. What does that tell us? That their, their image must be incredibly intimidating. But he says, do not fear. He says, your petition has been heard. That's a key statement. Your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bury you a son, and you will give him the name Yohanan in Hebrew. Yohannes in Greek. John in English. Now, in my opinion, when people teach on this idea of this petition, I think they usually get it wrong. The assumption is made that Zacharias has been praying all of his life for, for a son to have a child, and that we entered, when he entered into the holy place, that that's what he was praying about. But I think that's historically inaccurate, and it misses the big picture. When Zacharias the priest went into the most holy place, or the holy place, he was not thinking about himself. I mean, I'm sure he'd been praying for a long time for a child, but this was not about him. He was there to intercede for the people, to represent the people before God. And so they were the focus of his prayers. But catch this. This is really important. God is answering that particular prayer for Zacharias. How? Well, he's about to provide the very salvation of Israel. Messiah is coming, and the great news is, is that the son that's to be, to be born to Zacharias will play a huge role in preparing the way for him to come. So verse 14 says, you, mom and dad, will have joy and gladness. doesn't say mom and dad, but you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great. Look at that word, great. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Why no liquor? What's the, what's the deal with that? Is, that? is that a command for us? Absolutely not. This is specific to John the Baptist. The implication is, is that when he grows up, this man John is going to do things so unique and so radical that if he were a drinker, people might say, ah, he's just drunk. And so for his testimony, it was important for him to abstain from liquor. Now, imagine all the thoughts running through Zacharias' head as he hears all this news. I mean, it's just like this fire hydrant of information. And it's so shocking. He expected to be in there, you know, take in the room, do the incense thing, pray, and get out. But everything has now changed. Imagine all the information. The first thing I think I would have said to the angel would be, hold on a second, just give me a second to process all this. I gave up on having a child a long time ago, Mr. Angel. Are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, that's probably what I would have said. I'm just, I'm too old for this. And then secondly, how can I, Zacharias, you know me, right? I'm just the, this ordinary priest. How can I be the father of someone so great? Are, do you have the right Zacharias? That's probably what I would have said. But then there's more news coming. Look at verse 16. This son of yours is going to be the one to fulfill a 430-year-old prophecy. Oh, that's not a big deal. These are the very last words of the Old Testament Hebrew canon from Malachi 4. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Wait, my baby's going to do that? It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. What? 
to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So all these images are coming at Zacharias. All this information. So, and I say that because I think we, we should cut him a little bit of slack because he's about to stumble. He's about to make a mistake. But I want you to try to picture how this might have felt. How does he respond? Verse 18, Zacharias said to the angel, man, you, you had a little bit of time to, to get this right. He says, how will I know this? How will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So in spite of his reputation for godliness, Zacharias fails the faith test in the most critical moment of his life. There in the holy place, of all places, he fails in the holy place, in the shadow of this great angel. Basically what he does is he asks the angel for an additional sign that what he's saying is true. Like, oh, I heard you, but what else am I going to get that might help me to really understand that what you're saying is true, incorrect? Would we have done any better? Now, as you read the next verse, see if you can sense in the, in the words here how annoyed the angel is. I mean, he's indignant. The angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. Guys, this is the Lord's chief messenger. He doesn't come out, out of the heavenly realms very often. This is a big appearance. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which, were, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, I know that the angel wasn't speaking 21st century English, but if he had, I think he would have said, dude, really? I mean, that, that's the way I tried. Dude, really? Are you serious with the question? Why would you not believe me? I serve in the very throne room of God. When he speaks, I come and I speak his words. So if you're doubting me, you're doubting him. And so therefore, Zacharias is disciplined right there in that moment. And in a very twisted way, this, this sudden mute uh, condition that he has becomes the very sign that he had asked for. He's not allowed to speak. Verse 21, what's going on outside? The people were waiting for him. And they were wondering at the delay. This is like, should be a short thing. What, what's happening? Verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized, I'm, I'm guessing he's like, ah, with his hands. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, but remained mute. See, the normal thing is the priest would do his thing. It'd be a pretty quick thing. He'd say a prayer for the nation. He would come out. He would be grateful for those praying. And he would pronounce a blessing over them. Done. But not this time. And so for those that were present that day, this strange turn of events was interpreted as a sign. Look, God's doing something here. This, he saw a vision in the holy place. And verse 23 says, when the days of his service were ended, when the week was up, Zacharias went back home. Scene number three, really quick scene. Verse 24. This is back home now in the hill country. So we were in the hill country, went up to Jerusalem. Now we're back home. In the hill country. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. Oh, angel was telling the truth. What a shock. And by the way, we assume by natural means here, there's nothing supernatural mentioned. 
And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. You get a, you get a sense here that Elizabeth is overwhelmed with gratitude, that God would, would do this thing for her, that would, that would choose her above all women to fulfill this role and to have this child. And in the eyes of her neighbors, to remove this sort of stain and stigma of being childless. And you get a sense that she, she said, for five months, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to meditate on the goodness of God and I'm going to wait upon him. And maybe she's just too overwhelmed to go into public and have to constantly explain what's going on, especially since hubby can't talk. <laughs> right? So she's just, I'm just going to huddle down, hunker down in my home for five months and wait upon the Lord. Okay. So let's take, a, let's take an intermission. Three scenes down, half the scenes down. Let's take an intermission. Let's, let's talk about some of the really interesting lessons that we can learn from what we've studied so far. Here's the first lesson I want you to take away. Note how ordinary these two people are. How ordinary Zacharias and Elizabeth were according to the world's standards. That is such an important thing. According to the world, they weren't much but they were much in God's eyes. Much about what we know about them would have made them sort of undesirables according to the elite in Jerusalem. Yeah, they were descendants of Aaron, but that wasn't all that unusual in that day. They didn't reside in any of the great priest centers that the really elite people lived in. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jericho. That's where the, that's where the powerful people lived. In our terminology, we'd say, you know, they lived out sort of in the sticks. Zacharias and Elizabeth were from Bakersfield. <laughs> you know, they're not from Brentwood. They're not from Santa Monica. They're not from the power centers, Hollywood. They're from Bakersfield. That's basically what's going on. These are, we, we, we call them, these are middle-class folks. Hardworking middle-class folks. They're just trying to eke out a life of, of meaning and service to God, much like many of us here today. It's true that Zacharias was a priest, but we don't get any indication that he was a, a priest of renown. There's, there's nothing in his bio that would say, oh, great teacher, great writer, anything like that. And then you add on top of that this fact that they're, that they're barren. And so much of the elite, the snobs, the, the legalists would have looked down on them while they're being judged for some sin in their life. That's why they don't have children. Here's the point. As Israelite society saw it, this couple was not qualified to be connected to the coming of Messiah. They didn't have the resume that would connect them in any way to the coming of the salvation of Israel. But what does God look for in his servants? Does he look for wealth and power and social standing? That's the wisdom of the world, isn't it? Those things, celebrity, Wealth, you know, popularity, how many millions of followers. That's what the world looks for. It's not what God's looking at, folks. Our call to worship this morning was from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul said, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He doesn't operate according to how society sees things. He doesn't, he doesn't judge as the elite in society judge. He's interested in the complete opposite things. Whatever the world thinks is impressive, God chuckles at. In fact, listen to how Paul goes on. This is from the very same passage in 1 Corinthians 1. 
And Paul's talking about the church. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's looking at the Corinthian church and going, look, you guys are a bunch of middle-class folks from Bakersfield. Praise the Lord. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Nobody. Nobody gets to boast in the presence of God. Well, I was rich and powerful. That's why I'm here in heaven. That's why I I was a celebrity down there. No, it's not how it works. So that's Zacharias and Elizabeth. What did God see in them? Verse 6 told us they were ordinary folks who were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly. They were ordinary faithful servants, like many of us here today. Second noticeable thing that I want you to see here, and then we'll move on with a story. And there's more of this to come. Notice the emphasis Luke puts on the women in this story. And by the way, not just because they're the ones giving birth. Elizabeth, and in a moment, Mary, they're held up for all of us, men and women alike, as models of humility and obedience and faith. And once again, for a patriarchal time and a patriarchal culture like first century Israel, it is an amazing thing for a writer of Scripture to hold up two women and say, hey, take a look at this. Speaking of ordinary, by the way, Mary's resume is even far less impressive than Elizabeth's. And yet we're about to find out about her. But what an amazing thing. By the way, do women also play a really critical role in the empty tomb? On both ends of Jesus' life. Don't let anybody in this culture today try to tell you that that the Bible puts women down. Don't let them do it. Talk about this. These are powerful, godly women who love the Lord and live lives of great faith. Okay, setting number four. Six months later now, the setting of the story moves 70 miles to the north, to Galilee. Yellow dot up at the top. That's where Nazareth is. Far up, about 70 miles to the north of where Elizabeth was in the hill country. Okay, verse 26. We call this the ordinary teenager scene. We had the ordinary priestly family, now we got the ordinary teenager. Verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the same messenger angel, Gabriel, guy's getting busy, right? Guy hasn't shown up since the days of Daniel, but boom, here he is within one year showing up. Something big's happening, right? Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To a Parthenos in Greek, a virgin, a sexually pure young woman of marriageable age, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Remember, we looked at his genealogy last week. Joseph is descended from David. And the virgin's name was Mariam in Hebrew, right? Maria in Greek, Mary in English. Now, with Zacharias' response in mind, I want you to now listen to how Mary does when the angel comes to her. And coming in, this angel says to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement, again, understatement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, 
I have, a, I have a beef with the New American Standard here in a number of ways. First of all, they try to soften Mary's feelings here. They say, oh, poor girl, she was just perplexed. But the Greek word here, which is terasso, is the, the verb is the same verb that was used to describe how Zacharias was troubled. So this is, oh, she was perplexed. No, she was troubled. It's okay to say it, okay? She was troubled just like Zacharias was. So they had the same reaction. They're, they're both understandably shocked. I'm also not a fan of the next phrase, kept pondering. Now, what a strange phrase. It seems to think like there's this long period of time. Hold on, angel. I need like 10 minutes to ponder this. That is not what's going on here. The best way to interpret this is basically Mary instantly wondered why the angel would call her favored one. That made no sense to a teenager in Galilee. Why am I suddenly being called? She's processing that. Wait, what'd you call me? Favored one? Me? I mean, that's really what's happening here. So there's this whirlwind of things running through her mind, and it troubles her as it should. And so Gabriel does for Mary what he did for Zacharias. He comforts her. Verse 30, the angel said, don't be afraid, Mary. He repeats it then. You have found favor with God. And then here comes the big news. This is the shocker, right? Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua, Jesus. He will be great. That's the same thing that was said of John, right? He will be great, but here's the difference, much more. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. How does that work? And his kingdom will have no end. Where have we heard those words? Two weeks ago, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The covenant that God made with David. I will establish your throne forever. Here's the one. Guys, here is the serpent striker. It's been thousands of years, but here he is. He will reign on the throne of David forever. So you got to catch this. Paul says this happens in the fullness of time. But on this very ordinary day, think about it. I mean, we think we wake up in the morning, big deal, another day. On this day, on this very ordinary town of Nazareth, the Lord sends his chief messenger angel to make a promise to a very ordinary teenager that she will bear the one promised to David a thousand years earlier. It's finally come to pass. All these years, people have given up hope in the Messiah, and now we hear, Mary, your baby boy is he. He is the Messiah. Can you imagine what she felt in that moment? Wow. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Uh-oh. Did Mary do it too? Did she fail like Zacharias? We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 35, the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, that's how she's going to get pregnant. And for that reason, because of this supernatural conception, the Holy Child shall be called not the son of Joseph, but the son of God. And Mary, just to encourage you, there's something else supernatural happening here. Verse 36, behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren, who had that stigma of being barren, is now in her sixth month. She's been secluded, right? For nothing will be impossible with God. Man, underline that statement. Highlight that statement. 
Because sometimes we do this, you guys. We think, I am nothing. I'm just an ordinary person living in Santa Clarita. I'm trying to eke out a life of meaning and service to God. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to be faithful. This could never happen to me. And God chuckles. And God chuckles. He's looking for ordinary faithful servants to do great things through. Man, maybe not of this magnitude, but so many things that God wants to do through people like you guys. You guys in this room. I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that. A faithful servant, an ordinary servant from Saugus. <laughs> Canyon country, Castaic. Yeah, God wants to do amazing things through you. And look at Mary's response, verse 38. This is, this is as good a response as you could ever find. Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. It doesn't get better than that. Absolute submission to the will of God. Okay, scene five. We call it, oh, oh another map. Hey. Okay, so scene five, we have Mary now is going to leave Nazareth way up there in the north. She's going to make this long trip south to visit Elizabeth down in the hill country. Long trip. Probably take seven to ten days at, at, at best. Verse 39 says that she did this in a certain way. Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. Why hurry? She's excited. She's super excited, right? She's got all this news about her own life, and then she also wants to see, is it true Elizabeth is pregnant too? This is only going to confirm what the angel told me. She wants to see her relative. But also, and I started thinking about this, keep in mind, as far as we can tell, Mary doesn't know anything about the special identity of this child that Elizabeth is carrying. Gabriel didn't give her that information that we can tell. And she has no idea how much Elizabeth knows about her situation. So I'm just wondering in this trip, seven to 10 days to think about this, is she also a little bit anxious? Like what happens if I get down there and I have to explain this to Elizabeth? I mean, it's a pretty wild story. Is she going to believe me? If I start showing all of a sudden, is she, is she, is she going to turn against me? Is she going to believe this story? It's pretty wild. So I'm picturing Mary sort of rehearsing this conversation as she travels down to the hill country. But then you see Elizabeth's reaction, and it melts away. This is so cool. Verse 40. And I'm going to click. I call this the family stay. Verse 40. As she entered the house of Zacharias, and she greeted Elizabeth. Okay, anxious moment. What's going to happen? When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, flashback. Back up to verse 15. The angel told Zacharias that this baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit from its time in the womb. So he leaps with joy. And then mom is filled with the Holy Spirit as well, like mother, like son. And so this is an amazing picture of, of God in that instant giving Elizabeth the information that she needs. What she now knows about Mary and her baby and what she's about to say next is inspired by this filling of the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful picture. Verse 42, she cries out with a loud voice. That's what happens when the Spirit of God moves through you, right? You're like, yes, woo, excited. And she shouts with a loud voice, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She knows, doesn't she? She knows. Mary doesn't have to explain after all, isn't that great? God is so gracious. 
Mary didn't have to have that weird conversation. She knows. Verse 43, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord, catch that? She knows that the baby in Mary's womb will be her Lord, her Savior, the serpent striker, the Redeemer, the reverser of the curse. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. How encouraging is this conversation, right? And and what a confirmation, what a further validation that everything Gabriel had told her was true. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to have to skip past verses 46 to 54. This is what we call Mary's song of of praise, the Magnificat. And it's amazing, but the reason we have to skip it is it's a sermon of itself. It's pretty cool. Maybe someday we'll come back to it. We're going to go on in the story. Now, my guess is that Mary becomes pregnant during this stay with Elizabeth. She's going to stay for three months in the hill country. And that's the time, I believe, she became pregnant. And for the purpose of purity and testimony, that makes a ton of sense. First of all, she would have been separated from Joseph all that time. Okay, so that couldn't be the cause of the pregnancy. And she would have been chaperoned the whole time by Zacharias and Elizabeth. So for the sake of testimony, it sort of makes sense that this pregnancy was not by natural means, but by the divine hand of God. Okay, final scene. And this one makes me laugh the most. I call it family feud. Okay, three months later, Mary's been in the hill country for three months. She's going to go back. We're in the hill country of Judea. And what's about to happen is what we call a bris. Anybody ever been to a bris? Or know what it is? All right, not a lot of you. Okay, here we go. Verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. No surprise. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy towards her, and they were rejoicing with her. All right, way to go, family. And it happened that on the eighth day, the traditional day of circumcision, they, these neighbors and relatives, came to circumcise the child. Now, I take that to mean they didn't all come with knives, right? But they, they came to the traditional celebration, which you call a bris, where you get a moil and he comes in and he does his thing. Okay. But catch this now. They were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Seriously? This sounds pretty audacious. You're going to come to my party, and you're going to name my child? Excuse me? The family and friends show up believing that they already know what the name is going to be. It's a done deal. It's going to be Zacharias, right? Look at verse 60. But his mother, Elizabeth, right? She flexes her muscles. She said, no. Uh Uh-uh. He shall be called Yohanan, or John. And I picture the whole crowd, huh? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> are you serious? What? John, she says, there's nobody in your family, no relative who's called by that name. Now, you got to understand, in Israelite culture, they didn't just name their kids Sort of willy-nilly like we do. We'll name our kids after almost anything in our culture today. That's not how... The Jews always saw a name as being very significant for two reasons. Number one, it always said something about a character trait of God. 
And number two, it carried on family tradition. So this was very, very important. So under normal circumstances, this child would be Zacharias, which means God remembers, and his son would be Zach Jr. Simple, right? So, but what's more important in the background of this is taking on the name Zacharias would indicate that it was the father's intention that his son walk in his footsteps, not just with the family name, but with the family work. In other words, he'll be Zacharias and he'll be a priest like me. So when, when Elizabeth suggests his name John, all that seems to sort of go, you know, get thrown in the air. And the people are saying, are you saying that he's not going to be a priest? Is that, is that what we're saying here today? This is why they're so upset. Now, part of that could be that Elizabeth is a woman and she stepped out of line according to the, the code Right? She's being a little aggressive for a woman. But what choice does she have? Again, hubby's over here going... <laughs> uh, she's, and, and she does not want to get this wrong. I mean, the, the angel was very clear about his name. So what is she supposed to do, right? And as the fa- I, I picture the family and friends. They're not happy with Elizabeth's resolve here. So they, they turn to Zacharias and they're like, are you going to do something about this or just wave your arms? Straighten out your wife. Tell us whose name's going to be Zacharias. And made signs to his father, verse 62, as to what he wanted him called. And he grabs a tablet. Don't you love this? And he writes as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. You can picture their boosh, their jaws like hit the ground like, seriously, you guys are crazy. Both of you, we're leaving. That's basically how this whole party went. But look at how God responds now to the obedience of Zacharias, verse 64. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, and what did he do? He praised God. See, there's the right response, right? Look, this is a guy that could have been super bitter about what had happened to him. He's in the, he's in the holy place. He gets struck with this thing. It's been a miserable time. But as soon as he gets his voice back, what does he do? He prays. He worships. He worships. And then I love these last two verses, 65 and 66. Fear came on all those living around them. People were like, whoa, this is serious. And all these matters are being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. This is the ancient gospel or ancient gossip rumor mill, right? People in the hill country in Bakersfield are like, did you see this? We're going to be famous. Verse 66, all who heard them kept in mind saying, when, what, will, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Here's what's going on. All these mysterious events surrounding this child are starting to pile up and people are noticing. You start with, first of all, this vision that Zacharias gets in the temple and then him going mute and then Elizabeth getting pregnant in her old age and now this highly unusual bris and this new name and the restoration of Zacharias' voice. What on earth is going on is what people are saying. Something big is happening. And so expectations around this child begin to grow. And so it doesn't surprise us later on that we find that John has a great following. And until he tells people otherwise, it seems that people are like, this guy, John, might be the Messiah. Until he has to deflect that glory to Jesus, right? And then look at our last verse, verse 80. We got, again, we got to go past Zacharias' song. We don't have time for it. But drop down to verse 80. Luke brings down the curtain on our play. 
And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, this makes me laugh. Luke decides to tell the story of the bris, which to me is actually fairly comical. I mean, I know there's important things there. But then in one verse, he summarizes 30 years of John's life. The next time we hear about John, he's what? First of all, there's, there's a new Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate is governing Judea. And John's an adult standing in the Jordan River baptizing people. So Luke builds this foundation concerning John, who his parents are, the miraculous nature of his conception, how he fulfills prophecy, and what God says he will become, because those are the things that are most important to this man's identity. The next 30 years of his life in the wilderness are important only insofar as it helps him to prepare for his great mission, which is what? To make ready a people for the way of the Lord. That's John. So the curtain comes down on our, our story. Now, I, you know I have a postlude, right? Is that the right word, Grant? Postlude? Eh, I wasn't sure. I understand their mission. I don't know. Postlude. So a couple things to come out of, the, of this last section. First of all, let's go back for a second and, and answer the question about Mary's question to the angel. Why was Zacharias disciplined but Mary wasn't? For asking a question of the angel. I think the short answer is this. Unlike Zacharias, Mary wasn't asking for a sign to confirm that what the angel was saying was true. She wasn't. She was asking for clarification on what I would call the how question. How is this going to happen? Mr. Angel, I believe that what you say is going to happen. I only want a clarification. How? Since I'm a virgin. What logical question. She may have even been asking in sort of a roundabout way, hey, I believe what you're saying is true. Is there something I, I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> like, do I play a role in this? It's the how question. It's not, I don't think what you're saying is necessarily true, so I need more signs. I'm just asking, how's this going to happen? Do you see the difference? Very important distinction. I read one author, he said this, Zacharias asked for more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Zacharias says he can't be sure Mary says she can't understand, and those are very different things. Now, does that mean that we should all just have blind faith and never ask any questions whatsoever? Because sometimes people take things, that they'll rip it out of context and say, see, see, we're not supposed to ask questions. No, it's not wrong to seek out evidence for what you believe, but there does come a point when you can cross a line, when in a spirit of arrogance and skepticism, you start to demand that God provide you with more signs than he says you need to trust him. And that's an interesting line, isn't it? We've got to be careful. Second thing to notice here. Did you see how unselfish Elizabeth's heart is in verses 41 to 45 when Mary came to visit her? Again, you've got to think in terms of putting yourself in these character sandals. Here is a formerly barren woman, lived with a stigma most of her life, shame. Now she's supernaturally pregnant and filled with gratitude to God, yet she does not focus on herself. She focuses all of her attention on, on Mary. I think in our day, you'd see this type of woman doing nothing but obsessing about her baby. I mean, every social media post, every conversation, obsession over what's happening to me. But Elizabeth is so selfless here. She's like, look, I know I'm pregnant with a miracle child. 
But Mary, blessed are you among women. Blessed is your baby. Blessed is he, my Lord. And how encouraging would that have been to Mary? She goes even out of her way to compliment Mary for her faith. She says, blessed are you, Mary, because you believed, because you trusted that there was a fulfillment of the words that the angel gave to you. What a great lesson for us. If only we today could more often take our eyes off ourselves and all the great things happening to us and consider others more important and build others up rather than being obsessed with self all the time. Elizabeth, wow, what a model, right? Third thing, know what Mary thinks about herself. By the way, we can hold Mary up. As Protestants, it's okay to say Mary's blessed among all women. Scripture gives us all the boundaries that we need to properly sort of identify who Mary is and who she isn't. So see for yourself what Mary thinks and believes about herself. There's no hint anywhere in this text or anywhere else in Scripture that she thinks that God has chosen her to bear the Messiah because she's so special. That is not there. There's no sense that, well, I was immaculately conceived and I'm without original sin, therefore obviously I'm chosen. That, and that's what a Roman Catholic teaches. She doesn't think she's anything special whatsoever. She acknowledges herself as a sinner that needs salvation. She says, I'm the Lord's bondservant. I'm an object of his mercy and his sovereign grace, nothing more. Scripture tells us who Mary is. And it's been said, and I think there's merit to this, that the best way to view Mary is as a model for us of what a true Christ worshiper looks like, what a Christ, uh, Christian disciple should look like. In what areas? In her submission to the will of God, in her faith and obedience, in her grasp and understanding of what grace is, in the gratitude that she shows for having been chosen in the first place, in her familiarity with God's word. I know we didn't look, look at her song of praise, but it is dripping with scripture, with Hebrew allusions to mainly the Psalms, and in her trust in the purposes and promises of God. She's a great example, nothing more. And one last thing about Mary, and this goes back to this idea of being an ordinary servant. Listen, friends, age and gender are not obstacles to doing mighty things for God. Know that. Consider, contrast Zacharias, much older guy than Mary. Mary outshines him. Right? Reputation is a, pre he's a professional. Mary outshines him. Age and gender are not an obstacle. God can work through anyone he chooses. That's a great lesson. Fourth thing, Zacharias. Let's come back to him. Let this be encouragement to everybody in this room because Zacharias goes through sort of a roller coaster here in his faith, right? He's declared to be righteous in all his ways, but then this big moment comes, the supreme moment of his life, and boom, he drops the ball. But the good news is we just read at the end of the story, his tongue is loosed and he begins to praise God, and I'm assuming with even greater faith than ever. So I look at this moment, this, this lack of faith in this very stressful moment, sort of like I look at the denials of, of Peter, right? It's, a, it's sort of a temporary lapse of faith, but it's not unrecoverable. Why? Because of God's grace. Because God is a gracious God who forgives us. Not one person in this room walks per perfectly in faith day to day. But aren't you glad that God's grace covers it? And that we can have that moment where we go, oh, man, I blew that. I can repent and trust in the Lord, and he'll use me again. 
That's the story of Zacharias. God does not cast us out because we had a bad moment. That's an amen. Last thing. I, I can't end without talking about God's sovereignty. Because the Christmas story is about how God is sovereignly working in our world. And with him, even things that are humanly impossible are possible. That is stamped all over this story. Notice, God doesn't wait for things to happen and then send the angel and say, hey, go tell the people that I had planned that all along. (laughs) That's not how God works. God plans it in advance. He announces it, and then he brings it to pass. He can say what's going to happen because he's controlling what's going to happen. And I think God loves to do things that cause us, his children, to stand back and go, all right, only God could do that. I think he loves to get praised because of that, because we see his sovereignty. Friends, I love the fact that God didn't announce the coming of the Messiah to King Herod. Isn't that great? God didn't go, you know what, hey, I'm going to come down and I'm going to announce, I'm going to go straight to the power people. I'm going to go straight to the person that maybe has the most public relations channel. I'm going to go to the people that have wealth and, and, and status. He didn't go to King Herod. He didn't go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. I love that the message wasn't proclaimed first in Jerusalem. Isn't that great? It wasn't proclaimed in the temple where all the scholars and the scribes sat there with their robes, all arrogant, like, well, if the Messiah is going to come, he's got to come through me. It's not the way he did it. God sovereignly made the story known in the hill country of Judea, in Bakersfield, in Nazareth. He made it known to the humble and to the obedient. Guys, he made the message known to ordinary servants, to sinners like you and me. Are you grateful for that this morning? I am. Let's declare that in prayer.